right, our ushers are going to be coming by at this time with uh, note sheets and pencils. They've also got some Bibles, so if you uh, forgot to bring your Bible um, or you misplaced it, uh, we would love to provide one for you so you have the Word of God before you that you can look through it and make sure that we're not making this stuff up that we're talking about this morning. The Word of God is essential to all that we do in practice of our faith. It is the means by which God reveals His will to us. What we know of God, we know because He has shown it to us in His Word. So if we were to remove the Word from our worship of God, we would have no worship of God. It is the way that we know Him. It is the way that we approach Him. It is the means by which we understand what He desires for us. So the Word is, is good and holy, and we are happy to let that be the crown jewel of the worship service, that it is all focused on Christ and His proclamation of who He is to us. A jingle is a short, catchy tune that advertisers use to make it easier for people to remember what product they are selling. You hear that tune on a commercial. Sometimes you hear it over and over again. And before you know it, you're driving down the road and instead of singing Amazing Grace to yourself, you're humming the theme song for some children's breakfast cereal that you've never even eaten. Uh, from 1980 to 2001, the United States Army used a very catchy jingle to get young people to consider committing a chunk of their lives to serving our country. Um, I'll start it off, you finish it. Be all that you can be. In the Navy. In the Navy. <laughs> My holy brother never listens to commercials or watches TV, so he doesn't know that it was be all that you can be in the Army, right? Not only was the jingle catchy, it was thoughtful. It suggested that the discipline, the structure, the order, and the ethics of the military had the potential to get the most out of any man or woman who would invest their time and energy serving. With enough hard work and commitment, the slogan implied that anyone could climb to the ranks, uh, through the ranks and go from being a private to a sergeant major. All it took was time and effort. Now, I mention all this because in the past few decades, it has been suggested that the traditional structure of God's church has made it impossible for women to be all that they can be. The logic runs like this. If the pastor is the most influential leader in the church, and if the running policy is that women are not allowed to fill those positions of greatest influence, then a glass ceiling of sorts has been put in place which limits the representation of the female gender, and that this doctrine should be reversed. Why would women want to be a part of an organization that makes it clear from the start there are certain things you cannot achieve no matter how hard you work? So we're going to be facing this controversy head-on this morning, and we're not going to be doing it strictly, strictly from an intellectual standpoint. We're going to be doing it by examining the Word of God and asking God's Word to direct both our thinking and our feeling on this matter, as it has the power to do in every matter of significance in our lives. And so let me begin by pointing out two misconceptions that are foundational to this controversy and why people fight so diligently about this. The office of pastor is not the highest position of leadership in the church. That is a misconception. Who is the head of this church? It's not me. It's not Pastor Paul or or Sean, or Ross, the head of this church is and will always be Christ. Matthew 28, 18, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Him and to Him alone. 
Daniel 2.44, His kingdom will be a kingdom that never ends. A perpetual kingdom. No one will ever come along and usurp Jesus. Colossians 1.18, And He is the head of the body of Christ, the church, that in everything He might be preeminent and first. A biblical glass ceiling does exist, friends. And it is just as relevant to men as it is to women. We need to understand that. Christ is the only head of the church. Secondly, a foundational misunderstanding that feeds this controversy. The problem of sin does not discriminate between male and female. It is an equal opportunity destroyer. It impacts every man, woman, and child from the moment of conception. We are born enemies to God. And apart from God's grace, apart from His generous gift of love, we have zero potential to be all that we can be. We are what we are by grace, not by our own efforts or not because a system is in place to help us become what we could otherwise not be. These are two fundamental realities that every Christian must hold fast to. And they are so critical to our understanding of reality that if we abandon them, it will be impossible for us to draw the right conclusions about any question in life. This topic has the potential to get out of hand. So we would also do well to focus our conversation very pointedly this morning. I would begin with what should be the obvious assertion that God's church is not a men's club. Women are crucial to the church, to its function, and to its identity. In Genesis 2.18, God was speaking all of existence into creation, and everything that he made was good, good, good. The first thing that is identified as not good in the scripture is the fact that man was alone and was, out, was without woman. It was not good for man to be alone. And so in Genesis 2.18, uh, he, he proclaims that he's going to make woman for, for Adam. Psalm 68.11, the Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. So we are all to proclaim the word of God. Man, woman, and child, if you believe in Christ, let the message of your heart and the words on your lips be about Christ Jesus. Romans 16, 1 and 2 reminds us that women like Phoebe faithfully serve the church and are patrons to spread the word of the gospel. They are supportive of this gospel message that we just took up an offering to support. In 1 Timothy 5, the Apostle Paul goes so far to identify a class of widows who had been set aside for faithful deeds, those who are being supported by the church, and were now to pray for the needs of the church daily and to, to, to offer themselves as, as a living sacrifice to God's mission and holiness. <clears throat> so we would be wise to focus our investigation of the matter. The question is not properly one of value. Every Christian, if they are truly believing the gospel, should know and profess that women are of great value, made in the image of God, just as men are. So it's not a, properly a question of value. The question we want to answer today is one of assignment. It is one of role. If Christ died for the souls of women, who are now by election joint heirs through Jesus Christ, then that tells us everything we need to know about the worth of women. No greater price could be paid than the body the blood of Jesus Christ, which was shed for those women that he has called to him in faith. So in true Christian churches, it's not even a question about whether women are valued or not, whether they are just as important to men. Of course they are. 
The question is, should women serve as pastors and should they function as primary teachers of the word of God in his church? So it's a question of position, the position of elder or pastor or overseer. Those terms are commonly interchanged in the New Testament. It is a question of whether they can serve in that capacity. It is also a question of function. Should women serve the function that the pastoral position is called to fulfill? This argument has become so pervasive in the culture that a large percentage of evangelical churches have begun to change not only their policies, but even their hermeneutics, even the way that they read the scripture is beginning to shift in order to accommodate the ordination of women pastors. Now you may have read or, or heard us mention from the pulpit that Saddleback Church in Southern California, one of the biggest churches in the Southern Baptist Convention and Association of Like-Minded Churches just publicly ordained several women to serve as pastors at their church. Not just as ministers, but as pastors. And this is not a, a brand new situation because while Saddleback has just now officially given these women the title of pastor, they had been serving in the function of pastor for some time. And this is directly opposed to the Baptist Faith in Message 2000 which is the confession upon which the entire cooperation of the Southern Baptist Convention is built. So I want to show you the article where that is found. If you were to go back and look at our confession, we as a church are not ashamed about what we believe. You can find it on our website. We're happy to talk about these things openly, and, and we're, we're very open to friendly debate about these things. But if you were to look at Article 6 of the Baptist Faith in Message 2000, you could read this. Each congregation operates under the Lordship of Christ through the democratic process. In such a congregation, each member is responsible and accountable to Christ as Lord. So who's the top? Christ is always at the top. Its scriptural officers are pastors and deacons. While both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by scripture. So the position articulated in our Article 6 is known as complementarianism. It is the complementarian stance. Both men and women are of equal value. Both have been assigned unique roles and responsibilities and gifts within God's kingdom. These roles and responsibilities are designed to complement one another. They are different on purpose. In accordance with the command of Scripture, only qualified men can serve as pastors and hold the primary teaching roles in the church. But as is the case with Saddleback and a number of other churches whose names you would likely uh, recognize, many in the church have begun to adopt a mindset that it is more in line with the culture of our, uh, our nation today. Some have moved away from the complementarian stance towards what is known as the egalitarian stance. The egalitarian stance affirms that because men and women are of equal value, because they are equal, women should be allowed to serve in any capacity that a man is allowed to serve in, including the role of pastor, and may function in the primary teaching roles in the church. Now, do we as a church hold to the complementarianism that we confess in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000? Are we able to demonstrate from Scripture that it is a faithful testimony that should be held to, even if the culture shifts away from it. That is what we're going to talk about this morning. Before we begin with our exposition of the texts, 
And in our arguments, let's take a moment and just ask God's blessing over our time. As we learn at the foot of the cross, at the, from the words of Christ, let's ask God's blessing over our time. God, we thank you for your grace. And it is a humbling charge every Sunday to come before the people and to expound upon the scriptures to help brothers and sisters understand what these words mean and how they are absolutely relevant to our lives. And I pray that you would help me be humble in that task this morning. Help us to be humble in the reception of the knowledge that you would have us give. And please govern us according to your word, Lord God. Let us never try to push you off of your throne and pretend as though we have greater authority than you do when it comes to the composition of your church and how we are to worship you. Let us give you the gift that you have required of us. Let us operate in a way that you desire. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exhibit A in our exposition of the word this morning. The positive command of the New Testament scripture is consistently in favor of the complementarian view. A positive command, by the way, is a command that is not necessary because of morality, but is necessary because God has claimed it to be so. In the Old Testament scripture, the people of Israel were commanded that there were certain foods they were not allowed to eat. It was not a moral command that was given. It was a positive command, meaning that God could have told them that they were not allowed to eat any kinds of food that he so desired to prohibit because he is their God. But for that time period, he said, do not eat shellfish, do not eat pork products, do not eat certain food items that would set them apart as a unique and holy people from God. We know in the New Testament that that restriction has been removed, so it's not necessarily a moral command. There is always moral foundations to what God commands, but a positive command is God's choice. It is not based on morality. It is based on God's good and perfect will and His sovereignty over what He has made. And so we're looking at 1 Timothy 3, 1-7 as our first text today. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer, and again, that word is used interchangeably with elder, with pastor, with shepherd. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. As we look at that passage of Scripture, we read that these overseers must be many things. And most of the things that are prescribed here are aspects of the character. They must have the kind of heart and mind that seeks after the Lord and strives to be like Him. But there are some qualifications as well that we must not overlook. They are to be the husband of one wife. Literally in the text, it is a one-woman man. Now, in the Greek, there are words in the Greek language, the original language that this was written in, that could have expressed in a neutral way that the elder or the overseer must be the spouse of one spouse. But that's not what is put here. It is written plainly in the Greek text that they must be the husband of one wife. Now we know that there are elders that 
served in the church of God without a wife. They chose not to take that freedom to take a wife. So this isn't applying necessarily to them. But the words here are plainly masculine. The husband of one wife. And then in verse 4, this is, this is reinforced again as he speaks of these elders being able to manage their household well. And we can read in several different areas of Scripture, such as 1 Peter chapter 3 and Ephesians 5, that it falls ultimately on the shoulders of a husband, of a father, to manage the household in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. So who is the manager of the household? The husband is supposed to take on that responsibility. Basically, the same thing is asserted in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. And so the topic is addressed with more of a hands-on focus in, sec, uh, in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. Let's turn our scriptures to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Here, Paul is addressing the church at Ephesus specifically, which is where Timothy served. He's talking to Timothy as one of the leaders of that church. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. See, Paul here is addressing appropriate attitudes and behaviors in the context of worship services. Notice even here that both genders are addressed. Neither one is inconsequential to God, right? God cares about the ways that women conduct themselves. God cares about the way that men conduct themselves. Equality is not the issue here. God loves both genders. While the principle of the guidelines are in some ways applicable <clears throat> to both of the genders, the particular instructions are unique to each one for a purpose. God has specific and unique designs for each of the genders. There is a reason for this intentional diversity in the church. Paul expands on this in the verses that follow, beginning in verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly and with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now again, this is in the context of the gathered church service. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, as we examine this passage of Scripture, we see that Paul is instructing here very clearly, and this is not applicable just to Ephesus, because he says that in every church, he's talking about all the churches and how they should all behave themselves, that these things are so, that he is to let, or that women are to be allowed to learn. This is a good thing. This is a positive command, progressive for its time, that the women were to learn. Let a woman learn. There is a way that he has called for them to learn. In God's economy, Women were not to be prohibited from learning at all. They were to be encouraged to grow in faith and in trust in the Lord God. The scriptures should not be unfamiliar to them. Men were instructed, in fact, as part of their responsibility of husbands, to wash their wives in the water of the word. We see this in Ephesians 5.26. And that puts responsibility on the man to be the initiator of spiritual maturity and development in the family. So guys, you're not allowed to just sit back and let your wife... Take that lead role. That is your responsibility. If you are married and you have a family, God is looking to you to step up and to lead your family in a spiritual way. 
But 1 Timothy 2 says it is not God's intention for women to have the voice of instruction, specifically in the context of the holy assembly. This is the positive command of Scripture. Assign faithful men who are gifted to teach. Now you might notice here, it's not all men, right? Just because you're a man doesn't mean you get to be in a pulpit. Just because you're a man doesn't mean you get to serve as an elder in the church of God. Gender alone is not a qualifier. No matter what way you cut it, we must be discriminating about who we allow to serve in a wise and a humble way because these positions are important to the Lord God. Does the person's life exemplify faith in Christ? Can they communicate the word to others? Do they have some sort of a teaching gift? According to the positive command of Scripture, it is not part of God's plan for women to occupy positions of leadership or teaching over men of the church. Now, some might say, but wait, Pastor, this is all from Paul. These verses that you're quoting, they're all from Paul. Maybe this is just his personal policy. And maybe Paul got it wrong. Maybe this was just his opinion or perspective on leadership. Friends, if we begin to think that way, we have just set fire to our most trustworthy source of wisdom and comfort. The Word of God was written in large part in the New Testament by people like Paul who were not expressing just their opinion, but were expressing what the Lord had laid upon their hearts that they might communicate God's truth to the people that they were leading and encouraging. So we cannot say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to like the parts of the Scripture that I, I agree with, but I'm going to reject the parts of Scripture that don't fit my worldview. If we do that, we are no longer worshiping God as Lord. We are, in fact, acting as though we ourselves are Lord, and we are allowing the Lord to speak into our lives in so much as it accords with what we desire. And that is dangerous business, friends. To be sure, this is not all Paul's opinion. And so exhibit B, we should look at, friends, the consistent <clears throat> example of both the old covenants and the actions of Jesus Christ. There are those who would argue that Jesus was dedicated to overthrowing the cultural inequality of the genders, and that if only the culture was ready for it, Jesus would have been much more bold in establishing equality in the roles and the responsibilities of men and women. There are people that argue that. And honestly, I would encourage these folks to think a bit more clearly about the Gospels. Was Jesus ever afraid to challenge social norms? That was his whole ministry. Jesus was extremely bold about preaching the truth, no matter or whether or not people agreed with him. He was there to declare the righteousness of his Father. And so I think it would be a huge mistake for us to think that Jesus came and he desired to overthrow social norms and to let women have exactly the same opportunities as men, but he just wasn't ready to do it or he couldn't accomplish that in his time. This is the Son of God that we are speaking about right here. Jesus can do what he desires to do. And so what is the example of Jesus? Jesus takes on flesh. He preaches the truth of God. And in his earthly ministry, he calls 12 people to himself to act as his closest disciples, <clears throat> that he might prepare them to go out into the world and set the foundations of the church on a steady ground. They're going to be responsible to lead the new covenant church in its infancy. All 12 of these men were men. While women were always a part of Christ's ministry on earth, 
Jesus did not utilize women in teaching roles over men. Rather, the example that we have consistently shows women serving vital, important support roles in perfect concert with the complementarian stance. Jesus never stopped women from learning from him, did he? He was willing to set women up as examples who desired to come near to him. We remember Martha and Mary and how Mary desired to be at the foot of Christ and to learn. And he said that Mary had selected the better, most excellent part, while Martha, her sister, was out getting the house ready and, and acting busily. He said, listen, Mary gets it. She wants to know me. She wants to be near to me. And so he celebrated that in women, but he never assigned them to teaching roles over men. He was pleased to send them out to share their witness and their testimony. You might recall that the woman at the well, uh, who had a, a sordid past, encounters Jesus, and Jesus preaches so compassionately and gently to her, but firmly, that the way that she was living was not in accord with Scripture. And he, he calls her to, to get her fulfillment and her happiness and her contentment from something greater than what she had been seeking it from, from the things of the earth. He wanted her to get from the living water he had to offer. She's stunned by his proclamation that he is indeed the Messiah. But he doesn't just speak these things for her. He sends her out to her community. And there she goes and testifies that she has seen Messiah. She's not afraid to speak about what she's experienced. But he does not set her up as an apostle. He does not say, join my tag, my, my ragtag group of believers and become my 13th disciple. These were very, very useful parts of ministry that women were assigned to, but not to the leadership role. And that should not surprise us. It is perfectly consistent with the patterns that God the Father set long before Jesus took on flesh. The heads of the covenants, if you look back at the important covenants that God has set, which established the way that we interact with our Creator, the heads of the covenants were all men. Adam was the head of the covenant of works. Noah was the head of the covenant that was established with him in the rainbow. Uh, Abraham was the head of the Abrahamic covenant. Sarah was not overlooked in that covenant. In fact, God made certain to show that she was a part of that covenant. And when Abraham made the mistake of trying to substitute his handmaiden Hagar for Sarah's role, God rebuked him. He said, that's not my plan. Sarah's a part of this as well. But the heads of the covenant are always men. The Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, think about it. In, in the Old Testament economy of worship, who are the priests? They are the sons of Aaron. The elders, if you read through the Old Testament and you look for the word elder, you're going to find that while there were not pastors specifically in the Old Testament, that they were men of great respectfulness that served in their communities that were referred to as the elders of the community. And those elders would sometimes assemble at the gate or in the courtyard and they would render judgments over important matters of Scripture. And these elders were always men. So there is a pattern that continued for four to 5,000 years of human history leading up to the cross. And then in the 2,000 years since Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the resounding consensus of the Orthodox Christian faith has been that because God himself has set the pattern of men in positions of teaching leadership, the church has honored God's command to do that. Until now. Until just recently. Now there is a reason that I carefully chose the title for our sermon today, considering the subject matter has such potential for controversy. There is a reason that the consistent biblical testimony regarding church leadership over the past 2,000 years has been that men alone are to serve in pastoral ministry as elders. The reason for that mandate is not superiority. 
It's not because in any sense of the word, God is saying that men are better than women. That is absolutely not what God is saying. The reason for the mandate is not punishment. It is not a punishment for Eve eating of the fruit in the garden first and giving into that temptation. That's not the reason why God put men in these positions. The reason for the mandate is not to preserve some monarchic control to keep men in the hegemony, this established leadership role of power. That is not the goal of it. The reason for the mandate, and this is important, is order. It is simply order. An order that is ordained by God for the good of man and for the good of women, for the good of God's kingdom and for God's own glory. God has designed the church to function in a particular way. The structure of the bride of Christ is not arbitrary, but rather is meant to deepen our understanding and appreciation for God's leadership over us. And so let's return now to 1 Timothy 2 again. This is a passage that we began to exposit a minute ago, and I've, I, I bet you were probably a, a little sad that I walked away from it because there's lots more to talk about in this passage. So we're going to return to that now. 1 Timothy 2, specifically in verse 11. In the biblical account of Genesis, Adam was, firm, was formed first, and then Eve was formed. There was an order to creation. This is not a matter of value. It is a matter of order. God created Adam and gave him commands to obey even prior to Eve's creation. So tending the garden... And naming the animals was not the only responsibility given to Adam. The much greater blessing was that after God had determined that it was not good for Adam to be alone, and after he had caused Adam to go into a deep sleep and had taken the rib from his side and formed women, uh, had formed woman, Eve, and he had given Adam this gift, a wife, who he described as flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, God charged Adam with responsibility to care for her. Eve was to serve as a support role to Adam, and Adam was to protect and guard his wife. Friends, did he do that well? He did not. Adam did not protect his wife. He did not clarify the truth when she began to become confused by the words of the serpent. He did not step in and guard her the way that he should. Adam was not deceived, says 1 Timothy 2, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. But Adam's fault was even worse because it all happened under his nose. And this is the gift that God gave to him. Genesis 3, 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. You see that? And he ate. So he is, in some sense, accomplice to this crime, right? It was not until that moment, notice, it wasn't until Adam ate of the fruit that their eyes were opened and they became aware of their sin. Adam, who was given responsibility to guard and protect his wife, to shepherd her towards God, failed his charge. And who then failed all of mankind? It was not Eve, it was Adam. And that is why in Romans 5, Paul declares, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. It is Adam's responsibility 
And before we are in Christ, we are all in Adam. His actions were representative of all of mankind. All who would proceed from him were impacted by his decision to break covenant with God. Romans 5 goes on to describe Adam as a type of the one to come, referring to Jesus. So as a type, meaning as a, like a prototype, the work that Adam did in the garden was representative of all of mankind, yet he failed that work. He is a type. Now, an anti-type is the fulfillment of a type. He was pointing towards Christ, but he was not Christ. And so in the New Testament economy, Jesus comes. He takes on flesh, and he does what Adam failed to do. And he lives as the one true representative of humanity. He is obedient to the Lord in every respect. He is faithful to his God. And all who find their shelter in him by faith are no longer in Adam, but are now in Christ Jesus. So a pattern was set in the garden. The man was assigned to lead, but he failed. A better leader was needed. When Christ redeems mankind, he's redeeming the good things that man has defiled. And so if there was an order, even before sin, of leadership in the garden, God doesn't want to disregard it. He wants to redeem it. And when men trust the Lord and follow in the pattern of Jesus Christ, we see order and peace as a result of them returning to the order that God established in the garden. How are women saved through childbearing? That's probably a big question on many of your minds as we think about 1 Timothy 2. Now, remember, the context of what Paul's referring to there is Genesis 3, right? So he's got that in mind as he preaches this to Timothy, and he intends to it to be passed on to the Ephesian church and to other churches. And in Genesis 3, part of the curse of sin God includes the first prophetic revelation of his plan for redemption. Speaking to the servant, what, or serpent, what does God say as he calls both the serpent and Adam and Eve to him in that, in that garden uh, environment? And he casts curses on each one of them as a result of the sin. It says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, speaking of who? Jesus, woman's offspring, would eventually produce Christ, God in the flesh. He shall bruise your head, speaking to the serpent, he shall bruise the head of the serpent, our enemy Satan. You shall bruise, or, and you shall bruise his heel. Oh, he's talking to the serpent there. I got that mixed up in my head a little bit. He shall bruise your head, speaking directly to the serpent. You shall bruise his heel. So how is woman redeemed through childbearing, it doesn't mean you have to have many babies and that will make you saved in the eyes and the economy of God. No, it means that through the process of babies coming into the world, God would use that to bring about, eventually through the Virgin Mary, would bring about the birth of Jesus Christ, who would be what Adam could not be, who would fulfill the law and offer himself as a substitutionary atonement for his elect. That is what is meant by she will also be saved in childbearing. From the womb of a virgin, God, the son would come to earth to fulfill the law and do what Adam could not do. Eve was saved through that childbearing. And every man who trusts in Jesus was saved through that childbearing as well. This is the order that God established. Not based on man's merit or superiority, based on the principle of God being the head of man. 
man should then in obedience to God illustrate that by leading in the manner that God assigns to him. Not as a tyrant, but in mercy and grace, with love and compassion and truth as God the best leader leads. Now the differences between man and woman were present before the fall. They are not challenges to overcome. They are features of God's good design. And in glory, we're going to see the beautiful result of what happens when we follow God's perfect design. Who is better equipped, I might ask, at establishing order than God is? Who is better at establishing order than the creator of all good things? I want us to think about the irony this morning, friends, that a society that is itself morally bankrupt in so many obvious ways is now trying to tell the living God that he does not know what is most moral and good when it comes to gender and equality. Our society is trying to say, no, 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 Lord, maybe that was appropriate back then when so much of the world was confused, but if you want to be good, you've got to let women do exactly the same things that men do. Having been shown the weight of our sin, Christians, we can see how ridiculous it would be for us to try and correct God or to improve upon His designs. Knowing that every effort we make to operate independently from the sovereign leadership of God can only ever work towards our destruction. We must embrace the counterintuitive realities that our greatest freedom comes when we lay our own personal freedoms down at the foot of our King, Jesus Christ. We have seen that even recently in our studies in 1 Corinthians as Paul urged the Corinthians to give up their right to eat whatever they want to eat because doing so might cause a weaker brother or sister to stumble. He says, be willing to give that up. In the same way, Paul has shown by his own example that he's even willing to forego a pastoral salary and work tirelessly outside of the ministry because there might be a chance that some would misunderstand his intentions or question his sincerity and devotion to the gospel. So he gives up that freedom, that right. Likewise, men, when we embrace Jesus as Lord, we're saying amen to his authority in every area of our, of our lives. Women, we are saying amen to his declaration of authority over us. And so if he so chooses to limit, limit or prohibit something that we could otherwise be doing, we're glad to lay those things aside in obedience to our Savior, even if we're not totally sure why God is ordering us to let go of it. He has good purposes for doing what he does, and we have every good reason to trust him. I do believe, friends, uh, that egalitarians can be brothers and sisters of the Lord. I think it would be a mistake to write off a person as a non-believer because they believe a woman can serve in the office of pastor. But I would also argue that in time, the error of such a misinterpretation of the text should become clear to them. It should begin to weigh upon their heart as they see the patterns of leadership in the scripture and they let the word of God speak for itself. But we must understand, in the cultural environment that we're in today, it is becoming increasingly likely that you're going to encounter a professing believer who's adamantly convinced that the church is failing women if it denies them the opportunity to serve in the elder capacity. Now this may, even in the course of the next year or two, become the de facto Christian position on the matter. Maybe it already has in popular culture. So let us consider, friends, as students of the Word of God, some of the key arguments against the complementarian view. 
we want to start with arguments from Scripture. Now, I have, I have to point out the obvious right up front here. There are no examples, zero, of women serving as elders, pastors, in the pages of the New Testament Scripture. There just aren't any. So much of the egalitarian argument is taken not by what is declared, by what the, they believe is inferred or implied, or what may be possible. Much of the egalitarian argument hinges on the idea that there is an equality agenda, if you will, that runs parallel to the salvation agenda that Christ came to the world to fulfill. So they argue that Jesus was on a mission to elevate women to the societal status of men, but could not push that point at the time of his incarnation because the world was not ready for it. I mentioned that a little bit earlier. They reason that things have gotten progressively better, but Christ still intends to have his church finish the job for him. We still have a long way to go, and the church should be dedicated to establishing this functional parity. Now, while the New Testament shows no women holding the title of, or serving as functions of pastors, the Old Testament has some rare mentions of women in similar influential roles. There are some brief examples of prophetesses, for instance, in the Old Testament. We see Miriam. You can read about her in Exodus 15. Just a brief mention of the fact that the wife of Moses exhibited the prophet gift. We see of Huldah in 2 Kings 22, a, a prophetess that was consulted by the kings at the time. And we see one example of an Old Testament judge. Her name was Deborah, who served the Lord God at a very drastic and wild time. But understand, these examples are hardly evidence that the New Covenant Church should allow women to serve as elders. Again, we need to focus on the Lord's command for His New Covenant people. We're not in a period of time when new prophetical special revelation is being given to the church, we have the word of God. We don't need prophets to declare further what God desires for his church. We're not in a time of judges where we're cycling in and out of obedience and God is sending specific prophetic voices to lead the church back. That's not what's going on in the church today. Of course, that doesn't mean that women cannot be influential in very influential and significant ways. Women have always, always played an important part in redemptive history. They do that today in churches that are led by male pastors. The complementary viewpoint is therefore not that women are not useful or not gifted or not valued. The complementarian viewpoint is that the body has many different parts and each of those parts plays an important role. An eye is not an ear and a hand is not a heart. We need to determine according to scripture what our role is and do that to the very best of our ability. Each role is unique, and we need the direction of the Lord to point us to how the parts of the body of Christ are supposed to function together in harmony. Women can and are influential in very significant ways. And there is a passage that illustrates that, that the egalitarian viewpoint will often point to. Acts chapter 18, if you'd like to turn your scriptures there, you can, or I'll have these verses on the screen for you. Now, this is speaking of the expansion of the early church. It says in verse 24 of Acts 18, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside 
and they explain to him the way of God more accurately. So we have this man, Apollos. He's not preaching the word of God in error. He's preaching all that he knows about it, but he doesn't have enough information to give the fullest of pictures that he could. He'd only heard of the baptism of John. He didn't know that people were being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In verse 27, And when he had wished to cross Icaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And Apollos goes on to have an incredibly important part of the, of the New Testament expansion. Priscilla is wife to Aquila. When they are mentioned here together, they're mentioned in the way they are almost always mentioned in Scripture, which is together as a team, serving side by side. Now let me ask you this. The fact that Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned together, does that mean automatically that Priscilla is some kind of a pastor? It does not necessarily. I have had the benefit and blessing of, you know, after a service, preaching a sermon, of having a woman in the church come to me and say, Pastor, I think you misquoted a scripture there. Or there was a point that I wish you would have talked about. And I grew from that. Right? I'm not, I didn't say, well, well, hold on, go get your husband, and he can come tell me these things. <laughs> that would be an insult, right? This is a, a woman who I cherish. This is a valued sister in Christ bringing me the word of God, and I was grateful to receive that. And that is, that's how the church of God functions. So to say that for Priscilla to be an elder somehow is the only way that she could talk to Apollos with any sort of authority is undermining the great authority that we all have to exhort each other in the word of God. This is, a, this is a responsibility we share with one another. So to argue that Priscilla was plainly an elder because she spoke to Apollos is an error. And here we see an underlying problem with the egalitarian view. In order to get the scriptures to say what they really want the scripture to say, they have to prevent the scriptures from saying what they are actually saying. So this is not only a sacrifice of culture, it is a sacrifice of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the study of how to study the Bible. We all have some kind of a hermeneutic, though I would say that most people's hermeneutic is very, very weak. A, her a hermeneutic is a set of principles by which we see the truth and understand what it is trying to say to us as we live in obedience to the Lord God. And I don't have time this morning, I wish I did, to go into all the aspects of hermeneutics and, and uh, perhaps we'll have a series on that sometime. But one of the strongest tenets of hermeneutics is often called the analogy of faith. The analogy of faith which declares no part of Scripture can be interpreted in such a way to render it in conflict with what is clearly taught elsewhere in Scripture. In other words, Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. If you come to a passage and it's a little murky, you're not exactly sure what it has to say, then read other passages of Scripture that talk about a similar thing and get clarity from those other passages. If a given verse is capable of being understood in two different ways, it's possible to interpret it in two different directions, and one of those interpretations goes against the rest of Scripture, you have to disregard it. Throw it away. It's not useful to you. The latter interpretation must be used. That's one of the laws that helps us determine the difference between a sound understanding of Scripture and a shaky one. And if we're going to take the egalitarian view, we're going to have to employ some of these scriptural gymnastics where we bend the rules and try to see scriptures saying things that they're not actually trying to say. Friends, if you're a woman, do not let your heart be discouraged by the assignment that a God has given to you. One can be very evangelistic, very encouraging, as Priscilla was again and again in scripture, and through discussion and interaction bring light to people's lives. Proclaim eternal truth, all without serving in an official teaching or leadership capacity. An example of this is mothers. This is not the only example, but it's one. 
How much influence do mothers have on the children that they raise up? Y'all know who Charles Spurgeon is, I hope. If not, I'm failing you. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon was one of the greatest preachers of all time. C.H. Spurgeon, he often went by his initials. He had a mother. His mother's name was Eliza, and you should know her name too. Because his mother taught him the faith diligently. Charles' father was a traveling preacher. He worked a secular job through the week, and on the weekends he would travel around and preach wherever he was able to. And so he was often away from the household. It would fall to his mother, Eliza, to train Charles and his many brothers and sisters the good things of God's Word. Charles was not a perfect angel growing up, like your kids are, I'm sure. Charles resisted the Lord until he was about 15. And after going into a small Methodist church just on a whim, he heard a simple message to look upon Jesus and live. And the conflict that had been brewing in his heart over his personal sin found its resolution in the grace of Jesus Christ. And then shortly after, he was saved. C.H. Spurgeon, who was so articulate and such a master of the language, he wrote a letter to his mom. I just want to read you a little part of it, if I can keep it together. Your birthday will now be doubly memorable, for on the 3rd of May, the boy for whom you have so often prayed, the boy of hopes and fears, your firstborn, will join the visible church of the redeemed on earth and will bind himself doubly to the Lord his God by open profession. You, my mother, have been the great means in God's hand of rendering me what I hope I am. Your kind, warning Sabbath evening addresses were too deeply settled on my heart to be forgotten. I love you as the preacher to my heart of such courage as my praying, watching mother. Very few people have had the preaching impact that Charles Spurgeon has had. And yet his mother was influential in the establishment of that voice. 2 Timothy 1.5 uh, reminds us that Timothy himself, the one to whom these things are spoken to in 1 Timothy 2, um, was influenced greatly by his own mother, and by his grandmother. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. So, friends, do not think that women cannot have an impact on the church. You take the women out of the church and you don't have a church. You don't have what God intends the church to be. You are absolutely important to it. I know I have to move quickly. I've got a little bit more to say here, so... A second popular argument from the egalitarian position points to Galatians 3.28 and suggests that the distinctions between the genders in the new economy of the new covenant has been rendered absolutely obsolete. Galatians 3.28 says there is neither Jew nor Greek. You're familiar with this. There is neither slave nor free. You know what's coming. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Critical to a responsible hermeneutic of the Bible is a careful consideration of context. The egalitarian who says, look, this passage in Galatians here renders the genders completely obsolete now. We have to see each other as the same would be doing great violence to the rest of Scripture. This passage is clearly written in the context specifically of salvation. When it comes to salvation, there is no Jew nor Greek. When it comes to salvation, there is neither slave nor free. 
When it comes to the grace by which God saves an individual, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Being in Christ Jesus is language of salvation, is it not? And so if this passage were to actually mean what the egalitarian suggests that it means, then there is no, no longer any mothers and fathers. You don't have a mom or dad anymore. It would mean that the biblical family is dissolved. It would mean that there is not authority structure for society. All these important biblical constructs would start to crumble. Life would essentially be a free-for-all. Which, think about it, friends, is the way some people want it. Some people are adamantly opposed to the good leadership of the Lord God. They do not desire anyone, no matter how loving or honest or trustworthy, to have authority over them. And so it is in their vested interest to see any structure which keeps his good rule intact. They want to see that crumble. There's a reason why this particular doctrine is under great assault in the church right now, because it threatens not only the church, but also the family. And it threatens the goodwill of Jesus Christ, our Lord. If these society norms were to crumble, you would inevitably see society degrade into some kind of anarchy. And ironically, do you know who really does well in anarchy? Strong men. Dominant tyrants do really well in anarchy. Thankfully, they do not do well for long because you will not find a place in the world where anarchy has survived for long. God does not permit it. His common grace preserves humanity by not allowing that to happen. Every example of anarchy will eventually be put down for some form of order, friends. God-ordained structures, such as the family, such as the church, serve to preserve both men and women and shield them from the unspeakable things that the human heart is capable of committing. In terms of salvation, ethnos does not matter. It doesn't matter what your, your heritage is. Station in life doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you're free or, or a slave. It doesn't matter whether you're poor or rich. Gender doesn't matter when it comes to salvation. A man and a woman are saved in exactly the same way. And both examples glorify the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But that does not cancel out the differences in the way that we are commanded to serve. Friends, apart from Scripture, egalitarian, uh, egalitarians present several arguments just strictly from logic, just from reason. And so let's deal with those very quickly as we conclude. Here's one theory. Jesus would have established this equality, but the world wasn't ready. We mentioned it before, right? But think about that critically. Sin abounds today just as it did back then. Men are just as wicked, they are just as corrupt as they have ever been. So if they needed it, if they need it today, if we need equality today, wouldn't they have needed it back then? Wouldn't God have been well to provide it at that time in history? Christ was just as able then as he is now. He has not grown in power or influence. He came in the fullness of time, he says. He came when it was perfect for him to come. It is the perpetual lie of the enemy that we have moved past what Christ came to give to us, that there is more that we can now grab hold of, that we can progress this gospel to something better than it was before. His word is power. We cannot relegate the word to a position of simple, wise counsel that we can use to reference when we like and that we can ignore when it no longer fits the social norms. If you're a Christian, the word is your spine. It is your backbone. You are not sturdy if you have not the word of God, so trust it and cling to it. Second theory, Galatarians might propose... Without proper rep representation, women will never rise to their potential and will never have a clear voice 
Friends, our advocate is not our pastor. It is Jesus Christ. He is our one mediator. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. When our treasure is earthly, when we desire greater pay, more influence, better power, more appreciation, then we're going to trust only ourselves to get those things. When our treasure is heavenly, when we want what God wants for us, we're going to let Christ be our mediator and advocate. We're going to let him display our case before the true judge. God wants our leadership to reflect the order of the home. God wants our elders to be men, and so we need to say amen to that. Just because someone is your same gender, that does not mean that they're going to represent you faithfully. I have been betrayed by men leaders many times in my life. So it is a fallacy to think that just because somebody is the same gender as you, that they're going to represent you well, or that they're going to be faithful to you. Leadership problems are not the result of men being inferior in gender. That is also a lie of our society, that men are inferior to women, and so we need to replace them with women who are more settled, more wise, not as prone to danger. That's not the case, friends. We're all sinners. And if it is not for Christ, then we are lost and hopeless, no matter what kind of structure we build for ourselves. A third theory. The hierarchy of men over women came about after the fall, before which men and women were on absolutely equal footing. So we would be winning a moral victory to return things to the way they were in the garden. This is one of the theories of egalitarianism. But while much has been made of that rib being taken out of the side of man so that Eve would be beside Adam, would not be out of the head so that she would rule over, and not that bone wasn't taken out of the foot so that she would be below men, the fact of the matter is that man was given responsibility over all of creation in a dominion sense that positioned him as a leader before the creation of Eve and before the fall. So his headship is reflective of God being head over all mankind. We will see this in more detail when we progress through 1 Corinthians into chapter 11 when we talk about headship. The, the headship of man is not necessarily an, an evil to resolve. It's not a problem that we need to undo. It just needs to be done in a biblical and, and honest way. Therefore, we should cling to the things of Scripture and let the Lord guide us in matters of ecclesiology and church structure. The language of the curse in Genesis 6 speaks to a distortion of the good order that existed before the fall. Women would now desire to subjugate the man just as her sin is an attempt to subjugate God. But she will be frustrated by this as man will continue to rule over her because, not because it's sin, but because it's God's order for things. Now in conclusion, friends, the mantra of equality has in some ways, like an advertiser's jingle, worked its way into our heads and perhaps even our hearts. We hear it spoken all the time from the secular university. The kids in public schools are being taught this. It's being drilled into them that if you're going to be equal, you have to be able to do the exact same things as the opposite gender. I'm never going to have a baby. That's pretty obvious, right? That is a beautiful task that God has assigned to women. And men will never get that task. That's, it's not for us to experience with the same kind of joy that they have in it. And that is a beautiful thing. We should not be angry at the women. I know you might say, well, that's a lot more painful and uncomfortable. But a woman who has given birth to a child recognizes the beauty that comes in that gift of the Lord. It is okay for us to be made with different roles and different responsibilities, friends. And we need to embrace this. 
We need to be aware that the human mind functions in such a way that we are susceptible to being shaped and molded by constant exposure to an idea rather than the convincing testimony of truth. And so I pray that our examination of the true and faithful word of God this morning has given us confidence that the complementarian position is not a doctrine of men bent on holding onto some position of religious authority to oppress women, but is rather one aspect of God's multifaceted plan to tune our hearts to sing his praises and to be grateful for the headship that he has over all of us. Just before I began to preach, we sang a song together. It's not a jingle, but a beautiful hymn designed to help us consider the joy of faithfully following Christ. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, and just to know, thus saith the Lord. To adopt that mentality is not an act of laziness or ignorance. It is sweet to take Jesus at his word because his word has proven time and time again to be right and good. His promises are kept. His precepts are strong. His commands keep us from destruction and evil. We trust in Jesus. We let his word guide us because to fail to do so, friends, would be rejection of the highest wisdom available to us. And as we close in prayer, let us pray for strength that we might trust him more and more. God, we thank you for this wonderful morning of praise and worship to your name. Help us, God, to be discussing these things as we leave this place and as we fellowship together. I pray, Lord God, that we would not be burdened by the fact that we are different than the world that we live in. You promised us we would be so. It is evident that we are not citizens of this falling and dying world, but we are citizens of heaven. And so, God, let us rejoice in our uniqueness. Even if our worldview is scorned as hateful, as, as divisive, Lord God, we know better than that. So, God, bring great unity to your church. May every man who desires to lead, desire to do so as you lead us, God, with great wisdom, with humility, with love and gentleness, God. May we never be as the Gentiles who lead in a way that lords authority over one another, Father God, but let us be as brothers and sisters in one family ready to respond well to the word of our good Father. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.